Ephesians 2 is where we are. We're going to jump into it this morning. Um, we've been navigating through Ephesians. We will be into as we move towards Advent in the coming months. Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've been spending a good bit of time on God's care and love and kindness, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness that he has uh, for us. And so we've been talking about that. And it's interesting because Paul lays out this letter to this church in this real place called Ephesus. And he wrote to them and he, he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to remind them of their call. He wanted to remind them to not get sucked in to the kind of the, the ways of the city of Ephesus. But to recognize that there's a better way, to recognize this is an alternative way, there's a distinct way that Jesus invites us into. And so he writes and pens this letter while he's in jail to this church in Ephesus to, to stay the course, to not grow weary, and to be encouraged with the gospel. And so he, he doesn't begin by, by starting the letter and saying, hey, here are all the things you should be doing. He instead begins half of the letter, which reminds them of who they are, just beats the drum. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what God's called you to. Don't forget the, the way that he has shown grace and kindness and care. And that's what motivates. What motivates isn't I should be doing this. What motivates instead is, man, I have been set apart by God because he's adopted me in love. And therefore, I, I live different. There's, there's a very different way to approach Christianity. And Paul approaches it in a way of allowing grace and mercy and care and kindness to be what motivates us into following Jesus, not shame and guilt. Shame and guilt will never motivate, and Paul knows that, and he approaches the gospel the way Jesus does, and he reminds us of who we are. So we've been getting that over the last uh, several weeks, and so last week we talked about how we're alienated from God. We talked about that, the dark side, that we are dead in our sin, objects of wrath, but God was rich in mercy, and he chased us down. We didn't deserve an ounce of it, but he chased us down, and he pursued us. And he loved us. In the second half of Ephesians 2, we, we see uh, how the religious and the irreligious, though polarized, have both been rescued. So Paul, again, is trying to give us this framework of who we are. And we're going to jump in to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We read this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uh, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We'll pause there. First point is this, remember where you have been rescued from. And so he uses this word twice, remember. Therefore, remember. And then he later says, remember. Why is he using this uh, word uh, regularly here? He's trying to remind the, the church in Ephesus of where they've come from. See, regardless of your background, if you were to come up here and share your testimony, regardless of your testimony had uh, a bit more baggage than somebody else or not, we have all been rescued God has broken into our life to save you from yourself and to invite you into a life of hope and peace that is not built on circumstances, but is built on stability and security. And so he zooms in and he speaks to the Gentiles in particular. He says, previously he talks about how all of us are alienated from God, but here he specifically talks about the Gentiles who are non-Jews. Everyone fits in that category if you aren't a Jew. And so Jews are religious and the Gentiles traditionally were 
irreligious, having no religious beliefs. But both, we find here, were far from God. So he speaks to the irreligious, to the Gentile, and he says that you were separate from Christ. He says that you were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. The promises that God gave to Israel were not including uh, the Gentiles. That you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. That you were without hope. It says also you were without God in the world. And then he drills in even farther and he says that you were far away. I mean, he's kind of really giving clarity to like, hey, Gentiles, just want to communicate for a minute like where you were in all of this. See, non-Jews were once far off, um, far, far from, non-Jews were once far off from the promises of God. The Gentiles were. But there was a, a substantial content. There was a substantial hatred that the Jew had for the Gentile that we might miss. There's a Scottish minister named William Barclay, and he summarizes like this. He says, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. That's no joke. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. He goes on to say, it was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of source need. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of content to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. So like when you read about the Jews and the Gentiles in this section, it's easy to miss the realities and the pain that, that's being felt in this first century. Add to this the way that the temple was built. There's no way to exaggerate the role of the temple in first century, first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, it was essential. It was an essential part of the faith of the Jew in the first century. There were four courts in the temple. There were three on the same level, one on a different level. The one on a different level and that was farthest away was the court of the Gentiles. They were far away. Again, he's using the same language of the temple. So they were furthest away. And then there was other three that were on the same level. And these three were the court of the women that were Jews, the court of the priests, and the court of the Holy of Holies. And these were specific and only to the Jews. They were close to the presence of God in the holies of holies. The Gentiles were far away, far off from that. So Paul's using this language to bring a bit uh, more clarity. So this far off language was substantial in the first century day. And archaeologists found the exact wording of the Gentile court. And it said this, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuring death. So this isn't like a no trespassing, you might get the cops called on you. This is a result being death if a Gentile entered into a space that they were not allowed to go. John Stott reminds us of what the sign didn't say. It didn't say trespassers will be prosecuted. It said trespassers will be executed. Okay, so this is the reality of what the Jews and the Gentiles are reading in this text. He says, remember, you were once far off. Remember, you have been brought near. This gets at something that we can think without saying it. Again, like I said earlier, we can view our stories in tears. 
Meaning that if someone was rescued by once doing the hard stuff, or once being addicted to the intense stuff, or promiscuous in wild ways, you can celebrate and thank God for his mercy. But what about those who didn't do the hard stuff, that maybe grew up in Sunday school and weren't externally promiscuous? Is there a difference between the religious and the irreligious? We can have this notion that if you kind of grew up doing religious things, that you were never far from God. We can feel that with our testimony. Maybe some of you feel this way. That, that if your testimony doesn't have the crazy stuff included, then it's like, man, you kind of feel a little ashamed of your story. But regardless, God has rescued and he does rescue both the religious and the irreligious. Is there a difference between the religious and the irreligious? Maybe to us, but to God, there, there is no difference. That both the religious and the irreligious are leading a life that goes towards death. See, there's three ways that we can respond to God and two ways we can run from God. Tim Keller uses this language. He says, uh, there are not just two ways to respond to God, but three. There's irreligion, religion, and the gospel. So we have a temptation, especially formally in the South, and some of this is kind of interwoven into our realities even today, that we can find that the, the irreligious is obvious that they've run from God, but the religious maybe not so much. But throughout the Bible, we find examples of how people run from God. There's a, a blatant disobedience. There's a moral failure. And the assumption of that is that those are running from God. But what can be overlooked is how destructive moral and ethical successes can also be in how we run from God. Like the story of the prodigal son. And the story of the prodigal son, which is really about a prodigal father, he has two sons. One son willingly and uh, explicitly runs from his father, takes all of, all of his inheritance and runs. And that's a clear picture of irreligion. But the other son stayed by the father's side the whole time. He was, in a way, close to the father, but he was, he was further away from the father than the younger son was. Both had run from their father, and both were far from their father. We see that echoed throughout the New Testament. We can run from God in irreligion or relativism by avoiding God as Lord and Savior altogether. That would be irreligion. But also, in religion... We can run from God in religious activity or moralism by avoiding God as Lord and Savior, by developing a moral righteousness and then presenting it to God in an effort to show that he owes you something. And that's baked into who we are as humans. Martin Luther says that the religion is the default mode of the human heart. That we can naturally enter into a space and say, look what I've done for you. You owe me, and we can feel if we fall apart and we kind of screw up in life, we feel like we put ourselves in time out, and we don't approach God again until we get our life back in order. There can be a religious approach in how we approach God. Both are hollow, which is why we want to stand on the gospel, which would be the third way that we can respond to God. We can respond to God with religion, we can respond to God with irreligion, or we can respond to God with the gospel. And it is the gospel that frees us from trusting in our successes and our failures and to thereby trust solely in the grace of Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at here. Like, regardless of you're religious, if you're irreligious, regardless of you're Jew or Gentile, you have both been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So friends, regardless of what your story is, you're religious or you're irreligious, the opportunity for all of us is the gospel, and allow that to be the thing that we stand on. Not what we've done in life, not our successes, not our failures, but to recognize that 
all we can owe God is far short from what we, uh, to, to gain his favor and his love. But in, on the contrary, he's given everything we need, and we want to allow that to be the thing that we stand on. Friends, whether religious or irreligious, we have been rescued. Regardless of what you came from, you can or you have been rescued. It's important for us to recognize that as a people who want to follow Jesus and want to invite people to follow Jesus, that it's not that we're just trying to get people to be moral. Just get your life in order enough so you can show God that you're worth something. No, like it's the grace of our Lord Jesus, which is what Paul has been hammering over and over again in Ephesians 1 and to remember that he broke in and rescued you. Remember. The story goes on in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so that making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we have we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Second thing I want us to consider is that we've been brought near to become a new kingdom, a new family, and a new temple. And just as a sidebar, as I'm reading this, I'm just thinking about this idea of moralism and, and why we potentially struggle to hear things like God is rich in mercy, to hear things like he has given us the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. When we hear things like he's in love, destined us for adoption. When we hear about the embrace of God and his kindness and grace and care for us, if we approach God with religion, we can't accept it because we feel like we need to owe him something. And we will constantly stiff arm him and stiff arm the depth of his grace and love and care. And it's in letting go of religion that we actually can be embraced by him. And so some of you might feel that, that distance from this kind of stuff that we've been talking through because maybe deep down there's some religion in your own heart that you've built up. You felt like you need to show God that you're worth something. And everything that Ephesians is telling us is the opposite. Everything that Ephesians is telling us is the opposite. The gospel tells us the opposite. He says, but now, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near. And what a relief. Once far off, religious or irreligious, have been brought near by what? What does the text say? By your merit? By the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Felicia. By the blood of Jesus. Good answer. Yes, it's not by anything that you've done. It's by the sacrifice of God on your behalf. The blood of Jesus has done so. See, on this rescue mission, Jesus has broken in and removed the enmity that we have between God and the enmity we have between each other. He now becomes our peace. He now becomes our peace. Our God does not keep his distance or stand in, in on his dignity 
nor does he insist on ritual or protocol, but he's extended mercy and given us access. He has invited us in, and it's not based on what you can do for him. You have been given the same access. When you say it like this, when you think about how the, the access that Jesus has to the Father, like, I wonder if you probably think it's pretty close, right? It's probably, it's a, it's a straight line. There's, there's no barrier between the two. And we, through the blood of Jesus, have been given the exact same access, the same access that Jesus has to the Father, we have been given because of the blood of Jesus and through the Spirit. We have that same access. There's these descriptors here that we've been given peace, that the, the wall of hostility has been broken down, created a new humanity. We've been reconciled, that he's killed hostility, he's preached peace to the religious, he's preached peace, preached peace to the irreligious, and he's created this new humanity. You know, we're no longer foreigners or strangers. On the contrary, we now belong. And you don't belong by any other reason besides what Christ has done for us. Sojourn family, we are now a new humanity, it says. A new humanity, a distinct people. See, Jesus began to display this on the streets of Jerusalem when he walked the, the cities, uh, the, the streets in Jerusalem. And in this new humanity, he, he showed us that the glue of this community, and we talked about this several weeks ago, but the glue of this community was not hobbies, it was not similarities, it was one thing. It was Jesus himself. Jesus the, as Lord was the thing that kept this community together. And so you can have a Matthew the tax collector. Remember we talked about this several weeks ago. Max, Matthew the tax collector who was an oppressor of someone like Simon the Zealot, who was trying to destroy Matthew the tax collector. And he put those two together, Simon and Matthew, into the same community because they're a new humanity. They've been rescued. They're now a part of a new community together. Though they were on themselves apart from Christ in hostility with each other, Jesus brought them in as a new Humanity. Now they were committed to each other, not because of opinions or politics or hobbies or similarities, but, but, but on the firm belief that Jesus was Lord. That is what held them together. They were now this new humanity. The text gives us three ways this plays out, this new humanity. The first is that we're citizens of a kingdom. Citizens of a kingdom. The kingdom of God is not territorial. God's kingdom is God himself ruling with his people. And this is who we are first. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are first a citizen of the kingdom of God. You are first a citizen of the, his kingdom. This is the primary uh, drum we beat. We are sojourners, journeying as citizens of a new kingdom. That's who we are. We are, not, we are one nation, one kingdom, under God, And that kingdom that we are first under is not America, but the kingdom of God. We are citizens of a kingdom. Yes, enjoy your nationality, embrace your heritage, celebrate your earthly citizenship. But remember, you are now a citizen of a new kingdom. John Stott said this. He says, Paul is writing while the Roman Empire is at the height of its splendor. No signs had yet appeared of its coming decline let alone of its fall. Yet he sees this other kingdom, neither Jewish nor Roman, 
but international and interracial as something more splendid and more enduring than any earthly empire. And he rejoices in its citizenship more even than in his Roman citizenship. That's who we are. We are citizens of another kingdom. Frankly, that's, I think, why 2020 was partially so confusing for so many. Because I think that we are exposed, if we're honest, and some of us felt this on a personal level. At minimum, you saw it on social media. But we began to see that we were, as the church, the external, visible church, we were exposed that maybe our allegiances were more towards a party than they were first towards Jesus. And it was in these moments that God in his kindness exposes that stuff in us and reminds us that our first and primary allegiance is the citizenship of the kingdom of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 3, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So first, we're citizens of a kingdom, the text is. Second, we're a family. We have now been brought in as this new humanity to be this family. See, a kingdom is one thing, but a household of adopted kids who are given immeasurable rich grace and kindness is entirely different. You can be a part of a, a kingdom and be citizens and, and not feel any affection or care in a personal level, but in a family, we've been brought even closer. See, not just fellow citizens, but brothers and sisters in his family. Therefore, the love of brothers and sisters should always be a special characteristic of the people of God. We are now, secondly, a family, new family with a new father, secure by the blood of Jesus, stable, not by our circumstances, but by the blood of Jesus. So we are a new kingdom, citizens in that kingdom. We are a family. The last, the text talks about how we are a temple. It talks about this temple that we're, um, it talks about this foundation and then there's this cornerstone. The, there are certain rocks that archaeologists would tell us were these cornerstones. And so there were some that they found that are like 12 meters or 36 feet wide. These massive rocks they would put at the base of infrastructure to make sure that the foundation was set and wouldn't move. So when the text talks about cornerstone, we sing about cornerstone. It's not just a neat phrase. Like that is the, the very thing that's holding together the temple to make sure it didn't budge. These massive rocks that, again, archaeologists have found. And so that's what it's saying, that Christ is the cornerstone of his temple. It is only in the security of Christ where Unity and growth are therefore sustained. So he's not tied. What we find that where he gets here is that, we're, that, that we now become this, this temple, this place where God dwells. John Stott goes on to say, This new society God rules and loves and lives in. This is the place where God has built. This temple where his church will, where his presence will dwell. He abolished the ceremonial law, all the ways where humans chose to cleanse themselves. God has washed through the blood of Jesus. Now we can sing songs like, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because he has made a way where historically the temple had a sacrificial area that would uh, allow animals to be killed to um, uh, appease the uh, 
bring forth the justice of God. And now Christ has come and dealt with that fully. So now we can have this presence of God dwell with us. We've been brought near to a new kingdom, a new family, and a new temple. And the text finishes in 21. It says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the last thing I want us to consider is that we are now a dwelling place of God. He doesn't dwell in a sanctuary. He doesn't dwell in the Holy of Holies like he once dwelt. He now dwells in people who have put their trust in Jesus. That is where he dwells. You are now fellow citizens, saints, members of the household of God. You're built on this cornerstone. And now we carry the presence of God. It's kind of baffling. We can feel unworthy in doing so, but that is what the Bible repeats to us over and over again. So his presence and his fruit are now what we are growing into. That's what we're invited into. This sign of a mature disciple who is planting their feet in the kingdom is now the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to see a sign of if you are growing in how you follow Jesus, look at the fruit that you are bringing forth in your life. Is it love? Is it joy? Is it peace? Is it patience? Is it kindness? Is it goodness? Is it gentleness? Is it self-control? That is the fruit of the dwelling of God and our maturity and growing in that. This is not just a Sunday thing that we're inviting you into at Sojourn, but we're learning to follow Jesus and slowly seeking to see the fruit of his dwelling in our lives. This is what we're reminded of this morning. Remember, whether you're religious or you're irreligious, that you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Remember that you've been brought, bought, uh, brought into it as a new kingdom and a new family and a new temple. And lastly, remember by sheer grace that you are now the dwelling place of God. You are where God now dwells. This is who we are. The point isn't to simply be told, um, isn't just to be told these things, but allow them to shape who we are. This is who we are. This is what Paul is reminding us of. We're going to get into the brass tacks of what this means, but we begin and we have to marinate in these realities that we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The text ends and I'll end with this frequent reminder of peace. Peace. 